0: We are uh, continuing in the study of the book of Nehemiah. And uh, just a little panic here, just to make sure that, there it is, okay. See how I handle that panic? (laughs) Chapter nine is where we are going to be just a, a little recap, um, and certainly not of the whole book, but at least from the previous chapter, the book of, uh, the book of Nehemiah helps us to understand how God's people and, and leaders uh, get a great task uh, done and completed, and and it really was a wonderful thing. And they did complete that task, and and then there came a time in this book when the Word of God was read to the people, and I'm sure Ryan dealt with that uh, quite thoroughly uh, last week. And some wonderful things uh, happened in the context of all of that. People hadn't heard it really before their culture uh, had been shaped largely by where they were. Uh, it was a Chaldean culture, actually, and they, uh, they needed some explanation for uh, some things and they got it. The Levites rose to the occasion, began to do that. And just when some stuff it seemed like was really beginning to pop, um, uh, you know, the leadership rose up and said, okay, we're, we're, it's feast time now and we got to sort of go with the way that we do this and it's prescribed by the law. So uh, stop crying. And that's what they were doing. They were, they were responding to what they were hearing. Stop, You know, just dry your eyes. It's time to feast. It's time to celebrate. It's time to remember what God has done for his people. And so they put a semicolon I think, uh, there, and they began to do that. And just, and so, okay, you know, and, you know, they'd been sobbing and like, okay, I guess we'll eat and drink and have a good time here. Okay, is that sure we can do that? Yes, we can do, it. okay, let's do it. And so they did. And it was a wonderful time for them, of course. But in chapter nine, we, we picked the, the story back up and, and uh, they continue they continue with um, some of the reading of the word and some different things. And so the first 20 verses is what I'm going to read uh, to you just now. It should be uh, on the screen if you're not reading from your Bible or your phone. But I'll just go ahead and read. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and having dust on their head. So it was sackcloth and ashes time. They had feasted, they had celebrated, they had observed, right, the, uh, the feast day, but now they come back and they're wearing sackcloth and ashes, which are great symbolic uh, gestures of humility and, and just uh, uh, before God, you know. And so those of Israelite, descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So far we got 12 hours going on there. I don't know if you get impatient thinking maybe services are just a little bit too long, wherever it is that you go to church, but you may thank the Lord your God <laughs> that uh, you weren't at this service. I, I want to believe that every moment was electric, but it may not have been. <laughs> Nonetheless, this is what they did. Six hours of the law being read, right, and... and. Uh, Six hours of uh, confession and worship. Okay? So standing on the stairs were the Levites Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebanai, Bunni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Kenaini who called with loud voices to the Lord, their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbeniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. That was a call to worship, wasn't it? And so they did. And this was what was said, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and made him. Abraham, you found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gurdjishites. That's right. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on the dry ground but you Hurl their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. Probably would not surprise you that this is the longest prayer uh, in the Old Testament. There is not one that is longer than this. You'll also be comforted to know that we're not going to read the entire prayer, but just a few more verses. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock, You told them to go in and take possession of the land you'd sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert by the pillar of cloud did not by day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take you gave your good spirit to instruct them you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst amen and it goes on kind of recounting the history Of Israel the ebb and flow of that relationship where where God tells them to do something and they do it for a while till they get frustrated then they go their own way then God comes gets their attention again in various and sundry ways and then they come back and then things are good and then they go away again and then God and on and on does any of that sound familiar by the way can you I mean at my address, at least. It's a pattern, isn't it? It's a pattern. And uh, we, we see that. And what's happening here with Israel is that, is that they are confessing their sins, not only their own sins, but the sins of their forefathers as well. And uh, it gets into all sorts of detail here that we're not going to uh, to get in here, but I just might make the point, I'm sure Ryan made it last week, that their confession was ignited by the reading of the scripture. Hmm? That it was God's word that began to stir something inside of them, something we call conviction, right? We, we sense that. We said, Something's wrong. Here's, here's what God said, and, and we didn't do it neither did our forefathers, and like that. So so their confession was ignited by God's word. Now confession in our culture has fairly negative connotations, and it uh, stimulates ideas of fear and shame and guilt and blame and judgment and just all of that sort of thing. So we don't talk about it much, whether we're in or out of the church. It's one of those subjects that, yeah, it's part of it, but it's not something that most of us are very comfortable with. There is a quote from a, uh, a French novelist. Am I? Do I? I'm shaking here. What's going on? Well, yeah, Andre Malraux is his name, and he made this statement. He said, what is man but a miserable pile of secrets? Pretty cynical uh, perspective, except there's something that kind of rings true to our souls when we hear that. I studied uh, French literature in college and I can actually tell you that it sounds uh, even uh, more impactful in French. Would you like to hear it? What is man but a miserable pile of secrets? Merci. Um, I think, I don't know, but it is, it is, it's a, you know, it's, this guy was an atheist and he was kind of just, you know, there's no God and and all this. So it was, it was one of those things that somebody very intelligent might say as he observes uh, the condition of man, but he was kind of, he was probably an existentialist as well. And just, so he'd given up already. He says, look at this, you know, just a miserable pile of secrets. And again, I think that maybe he got something right uh, there. But What I also find inside of all of us, and I think you would agree, is a great hunger for forgiveness and for absolution and a return to innocence. Something inside of all of us kind of cries out for that, whether they're believers or or whether you're not. I, uh, you know, let me take you back into time just a little bit, 1958. Some of you have no memory of that at all. Most of you, perhaps but I'll take you to Montebello, California, 1958 St. Benedict's School, uh, and uh, little Mikey is six years old, and he is in the first grade, of uh, uh, a classroom of 50 people, one nun, and she, in the first three or four weeks, teaches me and my class this prayer. You ready? Oh, my God. I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishment, but most of all because they offend thee, O Lord, who's all good, worthy of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. That's a pretty good prayer. I didn't have the slightest idea what I was saying at that time, <laughs> but I knew it, and I could recite it. And what she was getting us ready for, of course, was in the second grade when we uh, received our first Holy Communion. And so you had to have a sense of uh, of, of repentance, something, some sense of that sin is bad. Uh, and so she was getting us ready for all that. And, um, and that was my, you know, introduction, I think, to the idea of sin and confession and repentance and, and all that. Kind of had a, a dark, foreboding air about it. Please do not hear me now uh, say bad things about the Catholic Church. I don't know what your background is, and if you had bad experiences, then God bless you. You and God can work all that out. I went 12 years. Uh, to Catholic school and I am grateful to Almighty God for that because whatever at least was not communicated to me, I got a real good sense uh, that uh, I was not God, number one, and that there was a God, number two, and that he was worth paying attention to, number three. And for me, that set me right up for the Book of Romans. and Galatians and some other places that could teach me about the grace of God. Amen? And how good that was. So please don't hear me if I'm saying this. And by the way, in most Catholic churches now, that sense of grace is much more present at this point. And uh, so I just wanted to say that as, a, as an addendum to that. I wanted to be forgiven. I was six years old, and I was at least aware of the fact that I was doing a few things wrong. And got to know about God a little bit, and there was a real emphasis on heaven and hell and how you could get to either place, and they kind of had that one wrong. But, you know, I, I, I didn't know any better, and so I just did everything I was told. I just did. But what I didn't realize, my friends, was that confession was a gift It was a blessing. It was a powerful means of God's grace to my life. Nobody said that to me uh, at all. It was kind of the doorway to be able to get to the communion rail, but it was kind of a dark and foreboding uh, doorway at that particular time. But confession unto repentance is, uh, is a gift, folks. It's a blessing. It isn't a burden at all. It's not dark, it's not foreboding, and it's actually something that you could get pretty happy about if you think about it for just a little bit. Somebody say amen. That's good. Because it's true. Let me give you just a quick definition of confession. Confession is the impulse after conviction that causes us to tell the truth about our sin, to come out of hiding, to humble ourselves before God, and come clean. That's confession, right? Let me say it again. Confession is the impulse after conviction that causes us to tell the truth about our sin, to come out of hiding, to humble ourselves before God, and come clean. Repentance is the act of turning from the direction that we were going and to begin a new direction with Jesus led by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So the confession comes first, I believe, and then, and then repentance, except often confession in our culture, if it comes at all, comes all by itself. My generation, the 60s, were maybe, and this is just my opinion, so I'll just say it was one of the stupidest generations that ever came down the pike. And for all of you that came after that, my humble apology. Um, We were were so stupid in so many ways. And one of the stupider things was that uh, in the name of being genuine and authentic and real, we were invited to... To just confess, just say it, right? Just say, just tell the truth. You know, there was there used to there was a board game called Group Therapy at that particular time. How many have any memory of that, or are willing to confess that you have any memory of it? But the idea was, of course, that they asked all these probing questions, and you were supposed to respond and then everybody around the the table got to vote whether you actually were truthful about it or whether you copped out copped out jeez so we got good at spewing during that just just telling the dudes you know you just tell all your stuff right there you know and then you felt a little bit of relief from having done that and then you said, boy, that was good, okay, well, and just walked away, now that I've unburdened myself. Sometimes they would do that publicly, sometimes they would do that on national TV, sometimes they would do it in a psychiatrist's office. And again, don't hear me uh, saying anything ugly about therapy or anything like that. I've, you know, it, it has helped many people, probably some of you in here, so I'm not, it's therapies like pizza, think about it. There's some really good, good pizza, and then there's some really horrible, horrible pizza. And that's in the Bible. Um, (laughs) But it's one thing to confess to get it all out to just say what's true. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you, right, Jack Nicholson, right? You can't handle the truth, you know, and and just, and like that. But he finally does at the end of the movie that I can't remember what the name of it is, but you know which one I'm talking about, where, where he doesn't tell the truth until the end. But there was no repentance, by the way, let me just tell you, at the end of that, Jack wasn't repenting for anything. He was not turning from anything. It was, yes, I did it, and I'm glad I did. Huh? And there's, and there's I think, that little, that little demon resides in all of us, at least the impulse, to justify what we've done. But confession without repentance is pretty useless as regards the kingdom of God, folks. You can get it all out there, But the Lord is looking for, for, for getting it all out there before him. But then it's not just catharsis that he's looking for, but then he's saying, okay, so you've been going this way. So now, so now let me take your hand and now let's go this way and let me lead you and let my spirit come into you and let me show you a new way. Amen. And so that's, that's the idea, the confession, the repentance. By the way, at the end of this chapter, they make a covenant uh, together that whatever it was that they just confessed, they're not going to do that anymore. So they were, they were good about really being sincere about turning around. Amen. And, uh, but I'd like to illustrate what I'm talking about here from the New Testament, because that's where we all live, right? So um, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the Book of Luke, and there's a trio of stories that I think help us. Rather than give you, you know seven quick steps to a confession and repentance, I'm just going to let these stories illustrate something for you and see if you don't get uh, what it's all about. The first one is from Luke chapter three, verses ten through fourteen, and it will be up on the screen. And uh, this, this comes from John the Baptist uh, having preached to them, and he was baptizing them, right? A baptism of repentance, says uh, Luke. And he is really saying some very forthright things to them, and they are being touched by all of this in profound and dramatic ways. And at the end of his time, They say, well, what should we do then? The crowd asked, and John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And? He said, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So it gives us a little picture, at least, of, uh, of a full-orbed kind of repentance. And, and the fact that they would even ask those questions tells us there they indicate a sober and a sincere heart they want to know what do we what do we need to do huh and 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 i think that that's part of what really true repentance uh, would be defined by let's go to luke chapter 15 uh, to a very familiar story it is the prodigal son story, there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Boy, that's a Selah moment right there, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, this is how it is. Catch this, this is, this is how it is. This is how the Father, is waiting. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best road, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Oh, one of my favorite, favorite portions of the New Testament. But did you notice that the son confesses his sin to his father saying that he'd not only sinned against his father, but he'd sinned against God. Huh? And so when we're looking at the idea of confession and repentance, there's a sense in which whatever you've done and whoever might be involved, ultimately there's a place for us to look to heaven and say, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Amen. That's a, that, that signifies, I think, uh something very important about the idea of confession and repentance. And finally, at Luke 19, the third of the trio. This is the story of Zacchaeus. It's also one of my favorite stories. When I think of Zacchaeus, by the way, I think of, of a combination of Danny DeVito and Ebenezer Scrooge. If you can get those guys together, right? Danny DeVito, Ebenezer Scrooge. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming. When was the last time you saw a man in a tree, by the way? It just doesn't happen too often, does it? And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be with a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, (laughs) if I, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now, this guy was a weaselly little dude in town. He was a Jew, but he was working for the IRS, and he was getting rich off of his job. And don't you know that is not going to make the people in his town warm toward him. So he had money. So, and who knows why he was in the tree, by the way? Who knows why it was what? Well, maybe he had heard about Jesus and he wanted to get up there, see if he could see who's holding the money bags and who he needed to talk to regarding their taxes. Huh? Better perspective up there, perhaps. Who knows? Nobody knows. I'm just inserting that. But I th- what I think I'm pretty sure of is the last thing he expected was Jesus to look up in his direction and say, Excuse me, I'd like, to stay at your house today? how's about it? And we don't have any facts about that at all. But Zacchaeus comes down and being a wealthy man and being kind of a prominent governmental, you know, uh, uh, official, you know, took him to the house. Yeah, come on in, Jesus. What are you drinking? And uh, you know, let's go out by the pool, you know, and, uh, and just and just kind of uh, relaxing, and uh, yeah, glad to have you, and all of that. And then somewhere in there, there came a moment, and we don't know where, but somewhere there came a moment, and it was probably just a look that Jesus gave him. Or maybe it was just a conversation. Jesus liked to initiate leading conversation. So how's business, Zacchaeus? Right? Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty good. You know, with the wife and I were doing all right here. The kids, uh, they'll be going to college and uh, blah, 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 blah. Right? All of that. But there came a point where conviction visited Zacchaeus in there. And there was probably dialogue about that. And tell me about it, Zacchaeus. He says, well, you know, people hate me. And I understand it. You know, because I've cheated a lot of them and everything. And I don't always feel good about that. But I, I know i got to stop. But I, I don't know how to get out of this. And Jesus said, well, let me talk to you. A little bit about that. And he talked to him. And by the next morning, or whenever it was, when he got out of Zacchaeus' house, I don't know exactly what happened, but Zacchaeus was transformed, wasn't he? He was just a different guy, and he came out of there like, it was like the end of Dickens' Christmas Carol. You know, it's Ebenezer Scrooge. One minute, and he comes out, and he's just, you know... The, go- the best gooses for everybody, and, and I love Tiny Tim, and I love Bingham. Ben- give everybody a raise, and he just turns around and just does all of this stuff that you don't expect, but it warms your heart because you know something mighty has happened to him. Amen? Well, something even mightier happened to Zacchaeus here because he comes out and and he says, I'll, I'll do all this. I'll give away half my possessions to the poor. We'll move out of this, this place here. Right, honey? <laughs> he says, yeah, okay. And, um, you know, and I'll pay back who I've cheated and like that. So that's a picture. That's a picture. Confession and repentance were his portion that day. And uh, he he lived out what, uh, if you're familiar with uh, AA or NA, he lived out uh, the, of the 12 steps, uh, step eight and step nine, making amends, right? Where, where, wherever it was that you violated somebody, you do your best to go back and try to make amends. That becomes, I think, a part of all of this as well. So we begin to see a picture of what confession, it's not just catharsis, but it's, it's being led by the Spirit to go in a different direction. And as you go in that different direction, you begin to behave differently. Because God, the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do things you would never do if you were still going this way, huh? Still going this way, you just continue on and on and on because why not? But you begin to go in this other direction, and it's different. But these are pictures of God's kindness to people, folks. God's kindness to stop them in their tracks and convict them and move them toward confessing their sin. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a gift that they could never have given themselves. It's a blessing that brings freedom and life. Not to be horribly crass, but Martin Luther, who was a priest but then broke away, and most of you know that story of the Reformation at least, and, and, uh, but he described the condition, listen, of unconfessed sin as a state of spiritual constipation in need of a heavenly enema. Don't look at me like that. It's a very earthy uh, uh, illustration, but I think it comes home to us, doesn't it? And I think Luther said it very well. It is indeed the means by which the toxicity of the soul can be flushed and the life of the spirit can reside more powerfully in our lives. Healing and restoration and wholeness now has room to do wonderful things. But if you've got a bunch of uh, secret little things, you know, the, the pile that we talked about there of... Secrets. Not, not even secrets to other people, although certainly there's, there's probably a powerful connection there, but just living as though God doesn't even know. But there's something about just starting right with him first and just saying, Lord, I've been wrong. I've been horribly wrong about this. And I want to change, but I don't know how. Oh, that's, that's all it takes right there. You get all the help you need. If you can just get that far, just get that far, he will give you everything you need. And I don't care what nasty habit that you have found yourself all chained up in or some s- secret sin that you you, know, you get away from it, but then you go back to it. and you get away from it, and you, come, you go back to it. You don't know whether you will ever be able to be free and you're wondering when is God finally going to give up on you and get fed up and just say enough and cast you into outer darkness. He's not going to do that. As long as you're willing to come back to him and come back to him again and again and again however many times it takes and say, God, please help me. Help me, I need you, and he will be there, and he will not judge you or condemn you or rub your nose in it, but he'll be very happy to not just welcome you back into his good graces, but he'll be, he'll be very happy to to lead you on a new pathway. You know what the problem is with those kind of sins. Uh, we hate them, but we like them. We hate them, but we like them. We hate them, and then, you know, dirty sin, I can't believe that I'm even, and blah, 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 and then, <laughs> and then we go back, don't we? <laughs> because we're, we're all sinners saved by grace, folks. And it isn't that God doesn't know that about us, by the way. The Scriptures say this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's not just a one-time event, folks. That happens again and again and again and again. If you were perfect, if all of us were perfect, there would be no need for the glory of grace to come and meet us. I'm not suggesting that we dream up sins to do so that we can experience the glory of grace. I'm not saying that at all, but all I'm saying is that there's plenty of opportunity in most of our lives for grace to meet us at times when we just feel so far away from the Lord. But he loves you and he will contend for your life every day that you have a breath. He will contend with you and see you to a place of deliverance, if that's what needs to take place, a place of freedom. Keep coming back. Let me just remind you from the text. Listen, listen to how they describe the Lord here. But you, listen, just take this in. Don't even worry about finding it in the Bible. But you are a forgiving God, gracious compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God, right? Total rejection, and yet he didn't desert them. Because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the desert, right? You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. If God was willing to do that for them, how much more? In the grace and in the mercy of Jesus Christ, is he willing to do that for you? Amen. Think on these things as we come to The communion table and ryan will lead us there think on these things don't don't sit there all isolated thinking we that we're all better people than you are and if we only knew the little secret things we'd never let you in the front door nonsense nonsense you come in the front door the back door the side door the grace of god as it's true every week is here to meet you and to help you, and to welcome you, and to encourage you, and to get you back out there on the road. Amen?